We've all, we've all read a book or, or seen a movie where either the antagonist or the, the protagonist, for one reason or another, changes their mind and, and jumps ship to the other side. Sometimes it's even the protagonist's greatest opponent, their greatest enemy, who will go to the other side and become his or her greatest ally. There's lots of movies that I wanted to use, lots of books I wanted to use uh, as an example to illustrate this, but then I thought that wouldn't be right because it'd be spoilers. And so I decided to pick something from the 90s, a movie that I, I grew up on. It's called The Mighty Ducks. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time. It's been out 30 years, so. It's a children's hockey movie. And in it, there's a character, and his name is Adam Banks. Now, Banks is a, is a rich kid, and he plays on the Ducks' rival team, the Hawks. And he's the best player on the Hawks. And, and throughout the movie, he, he's getting into fights and arguments with, uh, with players on the Ducks. But the coach of the Ducks, Gordon Bombay, he's also a lawyer. And he finds out that the district that Banks lives in means that he should be actually playing for the Ducks and not the Hawks. So now Banks has to join his enemies. He becomes a member of the team he once hated. And on his first day of practice with the Ducks, with his new teammates, almost everyone doesn't like him. Everyone's saying something against him. Everybody's calling him names. Everybody's suspicious of him. And the team that he used to play on as well, the teammates that he had on that team, on the Hawks, they're now his new enemies. So Adam Banks, at this point, has no friends, and nobody trusts him. Whether on the Ducks, they're suspicious of him, whether his old teammates, they're no longer friends with him. And in our text, Saul finds himself in a similar situation. Nobody trusts Saul either. The Christians who he once persecuted don't trust him. The people who he left, the, the unbelieving Jews, now want to kill him. Last week we talked about the conversion of Saul after seeing the resurrected Lord. But because Saul went from an opponent of Jesus to a believer of Jesus, as mentioned, he finds himself now in this difficult situation in our text. And we left off last week with Saul laying around a house, fasting, praying, and without his sight. God does everything for his glory. All of human history, all of his purposes, all of his decisions, all of his actions are done to maximize his glory in the universe among his creation. Listen to a, a few texts, uh, a few verses that I have to help you see this. Here's Isaiah 48. God says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own name's sake, for my own name's sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
And so what we see here is that the reason that God is relenting or, or deciding not to eternally cast Israel away is because his glory is at stake. Israel is very stubborn, very difficult to deal with, but God is not going to abandon them because he has made a promise to Abraham. And if he doesn't keep that promise, then his words can't be trusted. And his glory that comes from keeping his promises and carrying out his plans are compromised. And God will not have his name profaned. And because God does everything for his glory, he also commands that we do everything for his glory. Listen to what Paul tells us to do in Corinthians in chapter 10. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of the Lord. Drinking tea for the glory of God. God even forgives people, forgives people for his glory. He says in Isaiah, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And in the Psalm, Psalms, David pleads for God's forgiveness on the basis of God being glorified. He says, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great for your own name's sake. God is zealously committed to maximizing his glory in the universe. It's all about lovingly showing his creatures his glory. And so ultimately, why has God forgiven Saul? For God's glory. How great of a way to show people your glory and to have people worship you for your mercy and kindness and by grace and for your grace by changing the heart of one of your greatest enemies. What depths of glory can be seen by having the man that once wanted to eradicate the Christian movement become the greatest missionary in Christian history? And that's what our text teaches us about Saul. God didn't just save Saul simply because he loved Saul. He did love Saul, but it was to glorify himself by using one of his greatest enemies to bring the gospel to the nations. Verse 15 in our text, it states a purpose. And if we can say that Jesus' statement in chapter 1 where he says that his disciples will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, then we can say that verse 15 in our text is a sub-proposition to that thesis statement. And it's one that will be carried out through the rest of the book. Let's look at verse 15. This is one of God's purposes for saving Saul. But the Lord said to him, Go, that is, he's talking to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of my name, of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. 
So God clearly stated his purpose. He's clearly stated why he's saved uh, Saul, one reason anyway. God has a desire. So far we've seen the gospel stay with the Jewish people, but God wants the entire world to worship him. And he plans to carry out that vision through Saul. There's a problem. Humans are always meddling. They always seem to be at least attempting to thwart God's purposes in the world. In our text, we have a a few different scenes that happen in our text. There's a few different events that happen, but they all follow a similar pattern. And rather than go through it one scene at a time, we're going to look at the conflict resolution that's going on within the narrative. And we can see in several different ways throughout, and it's consistent throughout, that Christian or not, people had a problem with God's chosen instrument, Saul. For the Christians, because Saul was well-known and word got out that he could now arrest Christians and possibly even kill them, they were afraid of him. About a decade or so ago, there was a movie that came out and it was called Inception. And in the movie, uh, what they do is they, they hack their way into people's dreams. And as the movie goes on, it starts to become even more mind-bending because what they do is they, they hack into somebody's dream and then while they're within the dream, they go and hack into somebody else's dream. And so it's a dream within a dream. In verses 10 to 12, we don't have a dream within a dream, but we do have a dream about a dream or a vision about a vision. He comes to one of his disciples, Ananias, and speaks to Ananias in a vision And it's about a vision that God gave to Saul. God tells Ananias that Saul saw a vision that he would go lay his hands on Saul and that Saul would be able to see again. This is the vision he gave to Ananias. He saw that you're going to go lay hands on Saul, Saul's going to see again. This is what's going to happen. And so he commands Ananias, rise, verse 11, get up, go to a certain street, Go to a certain house where Saul is at. We don't know much about Ananias. He's not ever mentioned again in the New Testament anywhere. But we do know that he was afraid. Notice how he responds to to God's command in verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. So because of of Saul's past, because of his reputation as an enemy of Christians, because of Saul's new authority, Ananias is afraid to obey God. And we can see the, the very same concern amongst the Christians throughout the rest of the narrative. Uh, the disciples in Damascus, you look down at verses 21 and 22, listen to their response. And all who heard him, that is the disciples in Damascus, 
were amazed and said, is, not this, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So they're puzzled about him at this point. If we keep going down to verse 26, we can see this fear from the disciples and apostles in Jerusalem. Verse 26, And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So throughout our narrative, we see Ananias, the disciples at Damascus, and the disciples at Jerusalem are all very suspicious of Saul, and some are even scared of Saul because of his past. And it wasn't just the Christians that had an issue with Saul. The unbelieving Jews that were once on Saul's side have now become his enemies. When Saul was in Damascus, the Jews in Damascus wanted to kill Saul when they found out that he was now a believer in Jesus. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him. And the same thing for the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. If you uh, look at verse 29, it says, And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So after Saul's conversion, he finds himself in this strange situation where he's rejected by both the Christian community and the non-believing Jewish community. And it's consistent. The Christians who weren't his friends are not receptive to him even now, and those who are on his side are now his enemies. The Christians are afraid. The Jews want him dead. And this is an issue because God wants to glorify himself by using Saul to bring the gospel to the nations. If he's rejected by Christians, that'll be a difficult task for Saul. He won't have the necessary support that any missionary needs. If he's somehow killed by one of his new enemies, then that means that God's plans for him, stated in verse 15, would be thwarted. And that would mean that God is an efficaciously sovereign. Whether conscious of, it, conscious of it or not, the Christians, by their hesitancy to obey, and the Jews, by their desire to kill Saul, were opposing God's plan in verse 15. So what's the solution? Well, if God were like us, he could probably reconsider his purposes for using Saul. Maybe that was a bad idea. He could listen to the concern of his disciples that, like Ananias and, and give in to those concerns. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to, to use somebody who already has a good reputation amongst the Christians? Wasn't salvation for Saul enough? Now we've got to use him for this, this great purpose? When our plans are faced with opposition like this, we tend to look for an easier way, but not God.
God knew that saving a man like Saul and using him to bring the gospel to the nations would have been met by great opposition. But our God is a God who likes to demonstrate his power. Our God is a God who likes for all the odds to be stacked against him. And we see in our text, he calls people to do his will, even if it means telling them to do something very difficult or something that they're afraid of. How does he convince the Christians who are afraid of Saul to, to do what he's commanded them to do? Simply, God tells the Christians that Saul had an encounter with the king. Ananias finally listened to the Lord's commands and he, and he met with Saul. He went and he, he laid his hands on Saul and, and verse 18 says that the scales came off of Saul's eyes and he was, his sight came back. He was able to see again. But look at what Ananias says to Saul in verse 17 when he meets him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So notice that Ananias says that the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul. That means that part of the content of the vision that God gave him included telling Saul that, or telling Ananias that Saul had met with Jesus. And Ananias accepts Saul, which we can see by the word brother. Over and over again in Acts, we've seen that when people believe the gospel of Jesus, they become a family. And here, Ananias has just spoken about all the evil that Saul has gone around doing, and now he's calling him brother because he believes in the Messiah. We can also see the Christians in Jerusalem are comforted by the fact that Saul had an encounter with Jesus. This is down in verse 27. After they were afraid of Saul and skeptical of Saul's faith, God uses Barnabas to, to go to the apostles and disciples and to defend Saul. And look at what he says in verse 27. But Barnabas took him, that is Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. So, just as in Damascus, we see here that the disciples are told that Saul had met the king. He saw the resurrected Lord, spoke to the resurrected Lord. When I was young and in the military, probably 20 years old, I was placed in a, a section in the dining facility, and I was just a private, just got there. They put me under... Uh, a woman that was very uh, abusive of her power. She would often scream at me, yell at me, uh, you know, belittle me in front of everybody else. She would give me the hardest tasks, the hardest jobs, and I had to deal with it day after day after day. She was an E5, if you know what that is. It's a, just a sergeant. But when my E7... My E7 NCO 
He heard about the way she treated me. I remember one day that I found out he had a private conversation with her about it. And after that conversation, her attitude completely changed. He outranked her, and even though I didn't want to still work with her, I was more willing to do so. It's amazing how much comfort and confidence you can have when you have someone with such great power on your side. At first, the disciples had good reason to fear Saul. They thought he would, they would end up dead going around him. But when they heard that he met the king, they got over their fears and accepted Saul as family. What about the non-believing Jews? We've seen how he talks to the Christians. We've seen how he's convinced the Christians to, to carry out his plan, sovereignly working in their hearts and in their minds. And what does he do with his enemies? What about the non-believing Jews? What about the ones that want Saul dead? Look at verses 23 to 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Saul, he, he describes this story also in 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about this again. This is how he, says, he tells the Corinthians. He says, At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And Paul is telling this story to the Corinthians because he's highlighting God's power and sovereignty and allowing him to escape. And the way Paul presents the picture is almost hopeless. The whole city is on guard and covered and looking for him to seize him and to kill him. But God gives Saul and those with him the wisdom and the means for him to leave the city by going through a hole in the wall in the city wall. When we go down to the narrative of Saul in Jerusalem, and after Saul was accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews, they wanted to kill him, but the disciples helped Saul escape. Look at verses 29 to 30. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So in verses 29 to 30, the way that God overcomes the obstacles of his enemies is by convincing his people that Saul is part of the family, and then he uses his new family to help him escape Jerusalem. God's enemies cannot thwart God's plans. In Psalm 2, David writes about how the kings of the earth, they, they gather together and they, they conspire against the Lord. But what does God do? David says he sits in the heavens and he laughs. 
all their planning, all their schemes, it's a joke. It's a joke to God. The cross would have been one place where his enemies thought they actually won. But the cross was the place where the Romans, the Jews, the demonic forces were all duped into carrying out God's plan. Listen to what Luke says about the cross in Acts 4. It just amazes me how God just, just you know, I don't know. <laughs> For truly in this city, that is Jerusalem he's talking about, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So people were gathered together, opposed to Jesus, crucifying Jesus, carrying out God's plan the entire time. Proverbs says, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Man has a lot of plans, has a lot of schemes, but those plans will only be carried out to the extent that they line up with God's purposes and God's plans in the world. And in our text, the plans in the minds of men were to kill Saul, but God's purposes for Saul, verse 15, was to use him to bring the gospel to the nations. Who do you think is going to win? Whose purposes do you think will win out? Because God has a plan for Saul, and God's plans cannot be thwarted. It will always be the enemy's plans who are thwarted. Through the lives of his people and even of his own enemies, we can see God's sovereign and efficacious control over them. What was the result of Saul being accepted and escaping his enemies? The rest of Acts is going to demonstrate that, but we get a glimpse of what Saul's going to be like. He preaches Jesus everywhere. In verse 21, while in Damascus, the text says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And in Jerusalem, we see the same thing that he proclaimed Jesus. Saul was well-versed in Israel's scriptures and all of his understanding and his beliefs about God's plan of redemption and about the Messiah were all reconfigured about, around Jesus. And immediately after coming to faith in Jesus, he just had to go tell everybody. I remember after my conversion as a new believer, I seriously thought that I was God's instrument to save everyone at my workplace. I was so naive and believe that if my coworkers would just listen to me and, and I could explain to them that I had an encounter with Jesus, that God revealed himself to me, then that means that they would accept Jesus as well. And out of about the 40 people or so that I, that I worked with in the dining facility, I shared the gospel with almost every one of them. 
And it's like Saul, I just had to tell everyone about Jesus. Saul had to tell everyone too. And no doubt he told the unbelieving Jews that he was dead wrong about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah and God's kingdom has come in a way that none of us have expected. Because Saul was so brilliant and so gifted, confirming him or converting him to a Christian, to a Messiah person, and then releasing him to debate his enemies would be like releasing a lion on a gazelle. Another result we can see from Saul's conversion and God forwarding his enemies' plans is that the churches were built up and encouraged. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. I think they had peace for about, for, for two reasons. One is that Saul is a, a new Christian and he's creating a lot of extra problems for them. And when they send him to Tarsus, where they actually, he stays there for 10 years. He stays in Tarsus 10 years. We don't know what he's doing there exactly. You can also sense a, a, sense a, a sigh of relief. Like, whew, he's gone now. Maybe things will quiet down. But the other reason they would have had peace was because they got to see that God sovereignly controls even their greatest enemies. If they were terrified of Saul before, they would have had an amazing peace and confidence and glory in God that they've never seen in terms of removing any threat against them that God can remove any threat against them that he wants to by converting someone like Saul. Nothing can happen to them that God doesn't allow. God was, being, was able to be glorified in a way that he wasn't able to be glorified before because he's always full of mercy, he's always full of grace, he's always full of forgiveness, but you can't see that until it actually happens. A human, we can't see that until it's actually done. And now they're able to glorify the Lord and have peace in a way that they've never had before. After preaching in the synagogues at Damascus, the text says in verse 21 that the Christian disciples were amazed. And they asked themselves the question, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Jews in Jerusalem, or the disciples in Jerusalem are also glorifying God. They're amazed that Saul, a man like this, was converted to the Lord. We've seen in our text that God asks people to do things they're afraid of doing. And my question is, what does God want you to do that you're afraid of doing? There are many commandments that God gives us that are very difficult Maybe you have a friend or a, a family member that's sinned against you greatly and you haven't forgiven them or even reached out to initiate that conversation. Maybe you have a family member that you feel greatly burdened about because they're an unbeliever. 
and you feel the urge to share the gospel, but you're afraid that that sharing of the gospel might ruin your relationship. Whatever it may be, if God has set it on your heart and it's consistent with what's taught in the word, you need to be like Ananias and the other disciples and do what God's calling you to do. God knows it's hard. He knows it's difficult. But he wants you to do it anyway. If you're here and you're or if you're listening in and you haven't trusted in Jesus, I ask you to think about this, really think about this. Why would a man like Saul go from opposing Jesus to proclaiming his name? What good answer do you possibly have for that other than that Jesus Christ is the truth? He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord, and he writes in the Bible about how his encounter with Jesus has changed him. And you can have that encounter with Jesus today as well. You, like Saul, have sinned greatly, but on the cross, Jesus was taking the penalty that your sins deserved if you'll repent and believe the gospel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving uh, our dear brother, Saul, showing him the error of his ways and, and leading him to blaze a path for, for Christians throughout church history. All the churches he established that that have carried on and thank you for this great instrument. Thank you that your plans can't be thwarted. Thank you that with everything going on and all the fear happening today, we know that not one thing can happen apart from your will. And we know you could convert the heart of every man and woman on earth if you wanted to in a, to bring them to, to know the Lord. But we pray that you would work in their hearts to, to bring them to that. And we ask you these things and we pray these things and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.